as Lindbergh said, there are three groups that want to get us into the war. And he said the three groups were the English, the Roosevelt administration, and the Jews. Now, Charles Lindbergh was a, a certified American hero. He had flown a plane called the Spirit of St. Louis across the Atlantic Ocean. He was uh, idolized by Henry Ford. This was a, a, a group of people who felt that a lot of them had, well, of German heritage, uh, didn't want to get into a war, didn't like the idea of war, felt that it was antithetical to everything that uh, they believed in, that America stood for. And they found themselves up against the international financiers who had money invested in foreign markets. And if there were no war, they were going to lose their shirts. We know now that uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, that Roosevelt knew in advance about the attack. They had cracked the code and he basically allowed two, over 2,000 Americans to die to create the shock wave that would propel America into the war. At that point, America First was over. 1941, there is no interest in the federal government to destroy the manufacturing base of the United States. Uh, this has to become the arsenal for democracy. We need that Ford plant in uh, Willow Run to make bombers instead of trucks. And so it's all been repurposed, reconfigured, and it starts churning out uh, weapons to win the war. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. We must apply ourselves to our task with the same resolution, the same sense of urgency, the same spirit of patriotism and sacrifice as we would show were we at war. America is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In this century especially, America has done more than simply stand for these ideals. We have acted on them and sacrificed for them. You are shattering that, shattering the way you share the value added. And that means that you are destroying the basis on which we've been able to create an equilibrium and have a stable society. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. I believe that Israel has a powerful stranglehold on the American government. They have us involved in wars of which we have little or no interest. Our children are coming back in body bags. Our nation is bankrupt over these wars. And if you open your mouth, you get targeted.
If the soldiers who stormed the beaches in Normandy in June 1944 could see England as it is today, they wouldn't have gone 40 yards up that beach. You, as a political project, are in denial. What happened last Thursday was a remarkable result. It was indeed a seismic result. What the little people did, what the people who, who have been oppressed over the last few years and seen their living standards go down, they rejected the multinationals, they rejected the merchant banks, they rejected big politics, and they said, actually, we want our country back. everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Nick, and I am joined tonight by Hans, Hank, and Adam. How are you guys? Hello. Hey, everyone. Hey. I have been absent uh, for, what is it, two weeks or something? I've, I've, been, I've been traveling. Uh, and I'm back now. So what we're going to do today is we're having an After Dark program, and this is After Dark Shell Edition, because Adam has written a book. And uh, it, for the details as to how to get a copy of the book, uh, I will turn it over to Adam. Yeah, so th this is uh, first and foremost a companion piece to the show as well as in my view, uh, a very wonderful and thoughtful audience. And so what we've decided to do is to actually give this out to anybody who's donated whatever amount, doesn't matter, as long as you've been generous enough to uh, show appreciation for uh, the time we've put into this, we want to show appreciation to you. So all you have to do, uh, if you've used Patreon, is email Nick. Uh, you want to give your email address real quick? Yeah, my email address is n, as in Nick, nmm20c at tutanota.com and just when you email me uh just t if you if you donate through the the patreon uh just say what name you had donated under and then uh i, I will and whatever email if the email is different than the one that you were sending an email to me that you'd like to receive the book on for whatever reason just just tell me what email you want to receive the book on and you will have it uh sent to you yeah, and also Bitcoin is totally cool, whatever amount. Uh, and the format is digital, so this is going to be a download link. And uh, a little bit about the format of the book, it is using a lot of, uh, since I do the editing for this show, I have a massive library at this point of thousands of images that go into each show on YouTube. 
uh, as well as you know the, the thumbnail art and things like that. And so doing that in, in addition to a little bit of research and just being online and being involved in this uh, dissident right movement for, for years now, I've come across quite a bit of material and I tried to distill as much of like the essence of I think what we're discovering and, and trying to build um, over the past you know several years and put something together that I think is a, a coherent, one analysis to uh, a breakdown of some strategies and three what I personally uh, advocate for in terms of what I think we can do to improve uh, our people ourselves and and our, our movement and, and all that so uh, that's what the book is about is that the title is exit strategy navigating the decline of the American Empire so it has an American centric focus but the basic um, thrust is a geopolitical one since that's what we focus on on the show it includes also a lot of uh, practical stuff which is what i personally uh, like uh, but there are tons and tons of anecdotes and things that uh, you'll probably all be familiar with but what i try to do in addition to talking about the problems and analyzing them and seeing who the forces are behind that i try to get into some solutions which is arguably the most difficult part and Part of the reason I did this was I wanted to hear people's feedback, and this is this is a collaborative process. You know, nobody can claim to know exactly how things are going to unfold, let alone how they're going to fix them. So, what uh, I would like personally is anybody who has constructive feedback. I'm very happy to to hear your thoughts on this because this is a very hard problem of navigating a falling empire, which is how I think all of us view the American uh, nation plus uh, overseas military bases and the influence it, it bears on the rest of the world. I, I should like to add that uh, some people have asked me whether or not Satire will get a book, and yes, Satire will get a copy of the book. Yeah, it's our honor. Thanks thanks so much for being such a, a hilarious as well as a sincere promoter of what we try to do and, and also being a writer on uh, The American Sun. So uh, yeah, and basically we're, we're just we're trying to show appreciation back to anybody who's been kind to us. So that's the basic idea. So yes, he's been a friend for quite some time. So Adam, uh, why did you decide to write a book? Well, I guess that's the first question. Uh, I've never written a book before and that's probably the simplest uh, first thing I can think of is it was, it was a big challenge, uh, a lot bigger than I thought to be honest. And it was uh, also, um, it was a way for me to try to distill and synthesize a lot of the complexity that we all try to do on a weekly basis, uh, but do it in a way that is in a different format. Uh, and I'm a believer of w the way to understand more of the world is to experience it and look at it from different angles. And so this is another angle. It's basically a written format as opposed to a spoken one uh, or one that is audiovisual, uh, as we do on YouTube. And in doing so, I was able to sort of filter out, I think, a lot of the stuff that didn't make sense when you look at it in context. And so putting things in context helps a lot for me. Uh, and I just had tons and tons of thoughts that were not organized. And so I did my best to basically distill this into sections. And I'll just give a brief preview of the sections um, since I'm talking about you know why I wanted to do this because I think this gets to to me what people should be doing when they're 
when they're focused on problems like this, ultimately they should be able to think of a way to get out of the problem and hopefully build something that's better. And so that was the goal I had uh, at the end of the book. And so the beginning is basically, it's, it, there's three sections. The first one is called uh, Bust Out. Second one is Break Out. And the third one is Build Out. And so the first one is basically, how did the elite take over the country and the world? Uh, that's, that's the bust out aspect. How do they turn it into kind of a looting operation for them in some ways? Uh, the second one is more of like uh, low level as opposed to high level stuff. Uh, it's more battlegrounds. You know, where are you seeing this happen to you and your personal life and your community? Uh, give tons and tons of examples of that through the media, propaganda, education system, work environment, things like that. And the last one is uh, so, sort of a reflection of my life uh, and the past few years in particular in trying to exit the system and then also build an alternative or parallel system to buttress my life and also work as a, a base for people who are also uh, in our community who need to have something that is going to actually do something good for them as opposed to extract or enslave them, which is unfortunately what our system seems to have turned into slowly, uh, but surely. So th those are the, uh, the things that I was passionate about and what I wanted to write. And uh, to give the last simple answer, um, I live in a, a place where there's very long winters, so I thought it'd be a, a good opportunity to do something while the snow was piled up outside my window. Yeah, I'll say one of the things that I noticed when I was reading it, there's a lot of effort put into the the like visual layout and what's actually accompanying the text. Uh, it almost kind of you know struck me as kind of a, if you've ever read uh, How to Bomb the U.S. Government, the uh, the Sam Hyde uh, book. <laughs> yeah, that, I'll take uh, that as a compliment. Yeah. The uh, you know it really only translates in uh, in PDF when you actually have control over specific page layout and you you're not trying to like reflow everything with uh, with EPUBs. So I think it uh, it definitely rewards um, that sort of page based uh, viewing experience. Uh, is is there any chance that you would ever do it as like a print on demand thing? You know, uh, well the first thing is. I w actually wanted to include these images because um, I guess I'm just a very visual person and I think they fit with the dialogue. And I, I went through, for whatever number of images are in there, I probably went through 10 or 20 times the amount to basically find the most fitting ones. Uh, and so the cover of the book, I should mention, uh, just to start out at least, is that it's it's basically a picture of two men who are probably somewhere in the 80s, maybe you know late 70s, uh, sitting uh, in what looks like a, a very sort of simple homeless encampment right beneath the towers of the World Trade Center. And that, to me, made it as the cover because, for me, that, that sort of symbolizes what America has come come to be and is uh, no longer in, in many ways as well. Obviously, those towers are not there, but it, it's a mercantile empire, and the World Trade Centers were blown up by, um, you know, anybody's, is, anybody's guess is valid at this point, but I, I do not believe the official story, and so since the title of our show is Myths of the 20th Century, I thought that would be an appropriate title uh, or cover for, for our, sh our show. Uh, and things like that. I mean, I put a lot of effort into basically uh, finding poignant 
uh, images that, that sort of capture the zeitgeist. Uh, there's a few more in there. There's, there's one that actually people were not really familiar with, and it was uh, I had to explain it, unfortunately, to a lot of people. But I'll give uh, the audience, hopefully, some clarification. It was uh, a picture of um, it, it, what appears to be sort of a, a man, but if you look closely at him, he's actually wearing sort of clothes that were kind of fit on him very uncomfortably. And it turns out this is a mannequin. And there's actually a woman uh, mannequin right behind him. But they, they look uh, they look strange because they're, they're tilted over slightly. And in the background, there's maybe a 1930s or 40s truck where, with a man who's standing by it wearing one of those fedoras that they used to wear in the 40s and 50s uh, and started going away in the 60s. And so it's sort of a it's sort of a ghostly image because if you look at closely at the forehead of the man, he's actually burned somewhat, and he's tilted over. And a lot of people didn't know what it was or why he was tilted over. But this is actually an image of the nuclear blast test sites uh, in the Nevada desert, I'm assuming, or New Mexico, where they they developed the nuclear weapon. And so I put that in there partly because it was just a ghostly image and partly because since uh, a lot of our problems today are related to the destruction of the family and the nuclear family in particular, I thought that image would sort of combine those two themes together. So little things like that. I, I, I take those things seriously, and hopefully it comes out in quality in the book. Yeah, one of the other interesting things, like it's kind of got an, an interesting, like there's not one um, specific narrative, I guess. I mean, there's, there's kind of a meta-narrative because there's definitely a... Uh, a set of things that were about that, you know, they, they do go together. Um, but the, the sort of breadth of stuff that it talks about and the, the way that it's broken down, I thought was a, an interesting choice. Um, you know, it's not like a how to manual or like a, like a, a kind of manifesto, I guess you could say, um, like it's not a Bannon-esque, you know, this is this is my five point plan for like why things suck and like what to do. It's very kind of perspective, um, which I thought was a nice uh, a nice effect. Um, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, kind of how you chose what to talk about in the book. That's a good question. I, I some of the feedback I've received from from people is that it's it's kind of very analytical and it it may not be something that people would would read you know on a beach and and just be swept up in the journey of things there are a lot of sections that are kind of subsections of other subsections uh it it actually is a kind of a reflection of how i organize things and i like to group things into categories and then have subcategories within them because it helps me find and navigate complexity now, why did I choose what I chose to talk about? Um, it's it's basically looking in reflection at the topics we've focused on and tried to pull out what I thought was the most uh, insightful to somebody who may not have thought about some of these things before. And if you have, you've probably heard of these ideas. But what I also tried to do was in, include those things that are common myths of you know our society uh, and then try to 
offer evidence for why those myths are incorrect or why they're, they're actually myths and then try to try to give evidence for the truth, uh, which is first and foremost, what you need to do if you're going to understand the world. And then most more importantly, how you're actually going to deal with it. Cause if you don't even understand your, your surroundings, you're not going to be able to operate correctly. And so that was my first goal is try to identify things that are worthy of identifying as uh, propaganda effectively in our society. So, you know, things like, I mean, everybody knows this in our sort of circles, but things like, okay, why is feminism breaking families up? Why uh, is mass immigration uh, causing difficulties in communities? Why is uh, the, uh, the joblessness of 30% of Americans, which are effectively out of work because they're not seeking it, it's not included the unemployment rate. Why is that happening? I have a chapter uh, of the book called The Four Horsemen of the Economic Apocalypse, and I basically break it down to the, the cause um, uh, of immigration, feminism, uh, automation, uh, and... Uh, I had one more, so I'll have to look it up. But uh, basically, there's, there's, there's big factors that are, are driving these things, and I try to identify them and do my best as a, as a scholar to pull uh, credible sources for these sorts of things. And so there's a lot of citations, and it's, I would say, not exactly a, something that a university a professor would put out because there are a lot of graphics in there, and I actually made a few of them as well. Uh, there's one that I'm particularly happy with, which basically shows the trade-offs between uh, automation um, and uh, happiness. And so the more automation you have, the more efficient you are. Uh, and I think there actually is an increase in the happiness, but only to a point. Uh, because effectively, if people are made redundant, uh, people who control the automation may not want them around anymore. And actually, I think we're already seeing that. And so I, I made a little graph showing that sort of those two dynamics happening on a you know two-dimensional surface. And so little things like that, I try to make it somewhat scientific, but you know, there's not too many equations in it. There's not too many things that hopefully won't put people to sleep. Um, so those are, those are the sort of reasons I put those things in there. It was just, to me, these are things that I learned personally through doing the show and also thinking about uh, things on my own. And I thought it would be useful as a guide, you know, kind of like a hitchhiker's guide to the American empire kind of thing. One of the things that I, I found great about it um, was that you could take any single piece or maybe any two pieces of uh, paper in there and you could distribute them as just sort of a, a single sort of anecdote for a specific topic. And you could just sort of, uh, you can print those out and put them up as flyers or you could just send them as a, a PNG file to someone very quickly. Um, that makes it pretty digestible and redistributable. Whereas if you develop something with a lot of you know, built-in context, like I'm thinking of um, the Gladio book that you cite, you know, the, um, I can't remember the author's name, but that's a book that is very difficult to actually take a piece out of right. and just give to someone and say, look, uh, here's what was going on in the 50s and the 60s. Well, it wouldn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> it would be the names of some random CIA agent or some random um, you know, low-level Vatican official in Italy who was maybe doing some kind of arms deal with some other guy down the street. And it, it provides very little insight. Uh, it's in, those are extremely complex topics. And making them relate to other extremely complex topics that are um, not easily connected and trying to build a larger portrait of how um, 
how the United States really works. Like you have a you have a section just about the government, and then you quickly go into basic things that the government um, has been doing, mostly propagandizing, um, Cointel Pro, uh, security state, deep state apparatus. You know, a lot of, when I was reading that, I was thinking that a lot of this is um, ironically, in a lot of ways, what many predicted the most of the communist regimes in the 20th century would turn out to be there is a whole like raft of literature um throughout you know, the 20th century starting in the 30s going all the way through the 80s of you know failure modes for communist societies what you know how they how they'll end up what they'll end up like and um you know ironically every single possible failure mode has been replicated inside the united states today Every single one. I can't think of a single one that hasn't been predicted in some way in some novel or some piece of like boomer trash from the 60s about you know, the potentials of a, of a communist um, nightmare or in, in the United States or just in general. It hasn't come true. Even, thing, even, even things that uh, <laughs> were hinted at very briefly, like you know, uh, sexual dimorphism, and uh, very strange levels of automation that seem to be paradoxical with sort of the cultural um, apparatus trending towards power to the people. A lot of these things were you know, predicted as being sort of the, the underlying precursors of you know, a communist uh, nightmare scenario. But the reality is that they've occurred very much in a sort of, I don't know, maximally capitalist society. I forget where I was reading this, but it was um, something that came out recently. And it was a re- retrospective from a communist, from a former communist country, that was talking about how he was actually sort of observing this during communism of the West, in that the West had communism, but it was of a different form. So in his country, it was basically communism was... Uh, and I think I remember where, where I read this, actually. It's uh, P.A., he's this Polish guy, uh, and Hartiste uh, cites him quite a fu- quite often. So if you haven't checked out his website, check it out. Um, but he's actually uh, from Poland, and so his memories, obviously, are from uh, a formerly communist country. And he was basically saying that the um, the struggle in communist countries at the time was the rich versus the poor, and it was about class. In the West, he was observing this actually during the "quote unquote" official communism uh, in Poland. Uh, that the West was making it about other things, but it was still communist because communism is about equality, and it was men versus women, for example. I mean, feminism really didn't take hold in places like Russia. Uh, it still hasn't. If you meet you know, Russian men and women, they're they're very different. Sexually dimorphous, I guess, is the sort of uh, cultural phenomenon that we would observe there i mean there's obviously biological differences that are inbuilt but uh that was sort of his observation i think he's right and i I think it's continued apace because the united states still has a lot of wealth in total um and the the thing i think the argument for the left at the time in the 60s was basically you know the rich are taking over but i think at the time america was still had a fairly healthy middle class and so it didn't appeal to people and so that's that's probably explaining some of what we've seen today is that that sort of uh momentum built up around the sexual uh sexual differences or 
fight for equality amongst them and the racial differences as well uh, as what manifested today as the economy has declined. And so as people have been sucked into that even more because there's less compelling reasons to be openly capitalist. I think that's explaining a lot of the the, the strife we see in America today. Well, let me ask because most of the book is, uh, is a downer. It's, it's certainly not, uh, there's nothing uplifting about it. Um, you know, it reminds me of Suicide of a Superpower by Pat Buchanan. I don't know if you guys have read that. Right. Um, that was written six years ago, seven years ago. Uh, it's still very poignant. And he, a lot of the trends he actually elucidated have become more and more apparent. And he seemed to be very um, prophetic in what he was anticipating. Um, it's also one of the best audiobooks I've ever really listened to because it's actually Pat Buchanan doing the whole book. So if you get a chance to to just listen to it, I, I would you know, at this point as a retrospective. Um, but one of the things I got was that you know, Suicide of Superpowers is just an incredible downer. Um, there were there's nothing good coming down the pipe you know, as far as Pat Buchanan could see, and that was you know more than half a decade ago at this point. Is there anything positive? No, I, th- I think you're right. The majority of the book is is a critique, and I think in any sort of um, sales situation, frankly, you're basically going to have to start out with the problem, but then you have the solution. And I'm not claiming I have the the magic bullet here, but in the latter third of the book, I do focus on what I think is positive and I, what I think is is constructive, and that is uh, that is where I focus that. I mean. You know, I could talk about specifically what that is, but I think in summary, what is good versus what was worse 10 or plus years ago is that people are even just talking about this stuff. I mean, that's a positive development. Obviously, the Internet is instrumental in that today and why we're seeing the enemy basically try to crack down because, you know, the truth is dangerous. Uh, But I think that's the first thing that's positive. The second thing is that people are actually trying to not only talk about it, but they're trying to actually change their life. I mean, I've personally made quite a few changes that I think are strategically long-term what the right moves are going to be. I mean, specifically, I've gotten out of the big cities and tried to change my way of making a living that is no longer dependent on that way of life. And so I try to talk about ways that you can get off the, the system that in many ways is, is enslaving us. Uh, so those are, those are ideas that I've tried myself and had some success with. Uh, it is by no means easy, but I think it is essential because if this thing continues to heat up, like it's been heating up, uh, we're going to have fewer and fewer options in the future. And so the earlier you do it, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. I think it's ultimately, you know, not a black pilling book per se, um, although certainly it does not uh, paint the current situation in an excessively favorable light, just because I think the one of the underlying strains is that you are fundamentally in control of your you know, personal actions, um, if nothing else. And you have ways of relating to reality. I mean, if nothing else, just being aware of what's going on and not being satisfied with it is ultimately a step that unfortunately too few people more and more every day um, have taken. Uh, So although I wouldn't say that it's, it's uplifting per se, (laughs) um, I, uh, 
I think that ultimately it's uh, you know it it gives uh, it gives glimmers of hope. Yeah, I think the lack of satisfaction that most people carry around um, and never are never become straightforward about is probably one of the key problems. And it was something that Trump, and I think that the entire Trump era, if we're going to call it that at this point, uh, was really the fueled by. The orange era. I mean, people people were, were fueled by the fact that uh, there's this intrinsic sense, this, this doesn't feel right. This feels, something feels off. And you could see that reflected in Gallup polls, where for several years prior, there had been a slow buildup of people saying that they felt less confident about the future until it was hitting the majority of the country. And then it was hitting 60%. And then around the time Trump announced, it was 70% of the country was saying that they were uncertain and felt uneasy about the direction of the, of the future of the country and that their children's lives would be better than theirs. That was a clear sign that every most people, or pretty much everyone, if 70% are saying that, that's more like 85% are feeling it, and that 15% just won't say it. But people are really feeling this sense that, um, you know, my life doesn't isn't going that well. It's probably either getting worse or it's stagnating. And I don't see a clear-cut option to help my kids or help uh, myself in 10 years. That's right. It's because the system is reaching its its end of life cycle. It just is not capable of delivering what it delivered to our grandparents uh, and and parents. It uh, it is not necessarily the fault of, I would say, a super small group of people. Although they do have a disproportionate share, and I talk about plenty of that. But this is a systems dynamic, in my view, that you have a very, very, very large and complex set of independent actors that are moving along at their incentives. And that's, I think, also one of the themes that I, I don't explicitly say all the time, but I think it underlies some of the, the worldview of the book, is that people are selfish and they're operating to the best of their ability in maybe short-term uh, benefits, but ultimately that's what manifests itself in the system as a whole. Uh, you're basically going to have people who are viewing uh, a, a tree that is in front of them that they, they, they want to cut down because they want to build a house, and then if everyone does that, the forest disappears sort of thing. And I think we're seeing a lot of that being rewarded in capitalism, uh, whereby we have a lot of short-term orientation towards profits as opposed to a more longer-term thing where you would have under a different society that maybe have a, has a king or someone who really cares about legacy. And I think that's also something that uh, we've lost culturally, where we've become very sort of attention span deficit oriented, where things need to be in sound bites. And it's partly the fault of social media. It's partly the fault of just uh, excess wealth, where we actually don't have to take on responsibility for thinking long term. And it's also the influx of a lot of people that are not from cold climates, in my opinion, that frankly don't have the biological adaptation to thinking long-term. I mean, you basically have to live in winter to realize that you do need to plan. I mean, there's no option if you live in winter. You're going to starve to death if you don't put aside food uh, because the the animals are hibernating and you're not going to be able to find anything. So We're, of course, in the winter of Western civilization. And I, I think anything that you could say about Adam's book with respect to uh, accusations of pessimism or negativity, you could say the same about the program that we've been putting on for two years plus in general. I have 
on the about page of the site, I have a Yaki quote, which is, if pessimism is despair, optimism is cowardice and stupidity. And I would like to think that for whatever we do get wrong, uh, at the very least, what we try for is we, we try to look at history, we try to look at the 20th century, and by result of that, the situation that we're in now, when we do tangentially touch upon that uh, from a realistic perspective. I, I consider myself a political realist, and I think you guys do as well. There's two things. Um, there's One that I think Adam actually did a really good job on was um, in his sort of section, which is several pages long, dealing with this topic of empires and how empires have fallen and typically what happens to an empire in its life cycle. Um, he does he does bring up Rome, which is the obvious um, parallel for, I think, the United States for a litany of reasons, not to mention the fact that the United States is very many ways a Rome LARP. Um, but he does bring up uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is something that I've tried to bring up to people many times, that you really should not be looking at Rome too much for a real idea of how uh, a more modern breakdown will occur. The Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Ottoman Empire would be much better um, historical parallels because they deal with similar problems. One of the key problems of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that, um, that Rome didn't really have to face um, was the complexity and the closeness of ethnic groups. And that's something that the United States now has to deal with. Rome, towards its end, yeah, had flooded parts of its Italian heartland with people from all over. But the majority of the Italian peninsula and the majority of the, you know, the, the old Roman heartland um, was still in many ways sort of uh, italic or, I guess, Roman. Um, it had been severely depopulated. And it was dysfunctional. But it wasn't a close-knit group of various peoples who had increasing levels of paranoia towards each other. That's how the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed. The Austro-Hungarian Empire predominantly collapsed because of three main ethnic groups, or really, I guess four, but three main ethnic groups in constant competition with each other and were knowingly in competition with each other. And those would be German, Austrians, Hungarians, and Czechs. Um, most well, historical, and, and the, most and the historical, Yugoslavs, obviously. I guess the Yugoslavs, but the Yugoslavs were relatively minor in, in this, um, this main struggle. Part of the reason why the Austrian-Hungarian Empire was constantly dysfunctional for about 50 years prior to, to its end in World War I was the introduction of the Hungarians into the ruling class. And that was simply through demographics. That the Austrian-Hungarian Empire had um, it successfully grown the Hungarian population to such an extent that they were now too big to exclude from the franchise, the, the franchise of nobility and the aristocracy and sort of the, the ruling technocrats, if you could call them that at the time. They had to let them in. That's why they had to create a dual throne. And the demographics for the Czechs were also looking disastrous for the sort of Austrian-German uh, Austrian class. Um, if World War One had not occurred the way it did, or had not occurred at all, Austria-Hungary might have very well broken up or descended into massive war within 10 or so years um, just because of Czech demographics. That the Czechs were poised to pitch a very similar scenario 
that the Hungarians had to the Austrians. It basically said, make this a tripartite throne to respect the level of Czechs in the country and grant us autonomous regions the way they've granted the Hungarians, or we will secede. And the way that the Czechs were displaced throughout the Austrian-Hungarian Empire would have been a total disaster for um, for the empire as a whole, and it would have been a, a very much a disaster for the, the German elite in the country. The institutions of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire had like been rotting for decades, even prior to that. Uh, the Habsburgs were sort of this ridiculous family that really had no clue um, how to manage the country at all. Many of their loyal uh, family advisors and many other families that were sort of uh, loyal to them and worked with them in the country were also ridiculous people. Who, um, if you read any book on their history by the, like the 19th century, were just feckless and greedy and had no real clue on, on sort of the complexity of the place that they were running and were abandoning themselves in their castles and were focusing on this you know, minute elements of education and very much in line with uh, – our modern elite who are um, predisposed constantly towards these sort of infinitesimally important topics in education and academia and physics and so on that never really seem to matter in the grand scheme of things. And they seem to ignore very basic principles of political economy. The Austrians had created a very strange system the way that our elites have. They've effectively locked out. Um, most normal, smart, functional people from rising through the ranks and becoming part of the ruling class to try and right the wrongs of the situation. Um, and instead of taking it upon themselves as they had you know, locked everyone else out, they did nothing. And they let the country rot. They allowed, um, I guess you could say, the demographics of people that they used to rule over explode. To the point where the Hungarians matched the Austrians in terms of total population, the Czechs weren't far behind. And then they also allowed the Yugoslav population to explode, the Serbian population to explode. They were dealing with a huge problem with the Slovaks and the Ruthenians. So there was this endless issue of, well, how the hell do we deal with all these Slavs? And the answer to many Austrian elites was, oh, I don't know. It's just natural. It's just going to happen. And in fact, Prince Ferdinand was sort of one of these chief architects of this new cultural paradigm that they were trying to pitch. And the new cultural paradigm was going to be effectively the Slavization of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And this was something that the German elites within the Kaiserreich were acutely aware of and were very much worried about. Very worried about looking at Austria as a Slavic entity, potentially a Slav having a crown inside of Austria-Hungary. This posed a huge geopolitical problem. It removed a lot of the ancestral and um, cultural ties that the Kaiserreich had to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and it would have left them destitute, potentially. You can see this in a lot of ways now. With uh, I think Adam does a good job talking about immigration flows and demographic flows and cultural shift. It's been a huge cultural shift towards uh, Latin culture in America. It's sort of inexplicable. Where almost every pop song I've heard uh, in an Uber or wherever now um, has some level of Spanish chimed into it. Either part of the lyrics are Spanish, 
part of the chorus is Spanish. The whole chorus is Spanish. Or the, the be, rhythm, even. I the mean, rhythm will be very Spanish. It'll be a multicast song, and there'll be Spanish speakers in the song and English speakers in the song. I mean, it's it's bizarre to me, because I know that <laughs> these are playing on, like, uh, very well-known radio stations in Los Angeles, like SoCal area and other areas of the country. I think of, like, K-Rock and Kiss FM two ones that I knew of growing up. Last I listened to K-Rock and Kiss FM, they were playing songs that had Spanish woven into them. I don't know how you're supposed to understand it unless you sort of adopt this sort of um, weird cultural identity in order to just function on an everyday basis. The bottom line in that example is that that is who is still listening to terrestrial radio. I mean, our sort of demographic uh, is much more digital than somebody who just crossed the Rio Grande and is working a construction job in his 1987 Toyota Hilux pickup truck. Uh, he's basically got very little uh, credit and a, and maybe even knowledge of how to sort of set up a, a really streaming digital service that is going to beam him the latest stuff. He, he's fine with whatever's on the radio. And if you do travel through Los Angeles, especially, you're basically going to hear Ranchero music and uh, things like that on thirty plus percent of the stations. So, well, it's, I've heard, it, and it's money. I mean, and it, that's the other thing about the American Empire; it's a mercantile empire, and so the radio yes. stations are going to get people to listen based on what type of stuff they like. And if most people who are listening to that type of technology are Hispanic. You have to cater to that. And again, this is why you see all the commercials today. I mean, there's basically these multicultural things. They feel like it's it's marketing for them and business well, this, and money. This reminds me of um, and like one of the old episodes of Why America, where Landry talked about going to some rural area for like a friend's wedding with his wife. And they turned on the radio, and it was pop music. <laughs> And he described this setting of um, like driving by nice green fields and barn houses and listening to some like Negro rap on the radio. I think it was Rihanna. I remember that. Episode. Yeah, it was. It was. Sur- it's surreal. And I've heard it not just in, in L.A. I've heard it all over the country at this point. I think that, you know, my, my larger point there is that it's something that Adam does a good job of and. It's something that people should look more into, you know, how the Austro-Hungarian Empire fell and what would have happened had World War One not happened. Had World War One not happened, it would have just descended into a massive civil war and it would have been just a German invasion of the Austro-Hungarian Empire to try and protect uh, the Austrian crown, which would have probably resulted in some kind of European war, um, just given all the strange defense treaties that existed at the time. Um the other point that Adam does a good job of, and uh, he, you know, you cite Tucker Carlson at least a few times on this topic, is that basically um, American men have imploded in a lot of not not through many faults of their own, um, but have generally imploded. Here's a, a quote you give from uh, from Tucker: "The patriarchy is gone. Women are winning. Men are failing." Men in America are now more likely to die off of a drug overdose, drop out of the workforce because of an addiction, commit a felony, and go to prison. They fail in school much more than women do. They kill themselves at many times that rate. Overall, they died years younger. Those numbers are not speculative. They are hard data gathered over decades by nonpartisan researchers. 
you'd have to ignore a huge amount of settled science in order to repeat the pieties of 1970s era feminism. And yes, that's exactly what our leaders continue to do. You have a couple other sections here on like. I'm glad you brought that up, and and I think it's if I can comment, it's representative of I think a lot of themes within the book that talk about surface level problems that a lot of individuals are feeling, and because they're so overwhelming and fundamental. I mean, if you take you know, the the sort of decline of the average man in Western society as kind of the first pass level of of problem, uh, that's a crippling psychological issue that a lot of men struggle with i mean if they look at their fathers and and grandparents who had families at much younger ages with much less uh reputable uh occupations i mean you know my one of my grandfathers was a operated a gas station i mean for god's sakes it's like you know he had a family and so one of mine was a uh, milkman exactly one of my grandfathers owned a bar yeah, and, and this yeah. probably would have been a great era to be alive, <laughs> frankly, but oh, yeah. it's um, it's just not good enough today. I mean, you know, where's your PhD? Uh, so th- this, but my broader point about that was that these things get people stuck, and because they're so fundamentally difficult to deal with because if you don't have a wife, you feel like you have no future, you have no children, you have nothing. And so people dip into depression, they get angry, and they react, but what I try to do with that example, uh, in, a, in addition to others, which I think are economic as well, is I try to get to the root causes. And feminism, in my opinion, is not actually uh, the cause of most of our ills. It's a symptom. Uh, no. I think it's, it's a symptom of modernity. It's a symptom of, of excess wealth, uh, which is sort of a kind of an oxymoron in a way. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a decadent symptom, symptom. And it's also a symptom of, in my view, some of the elites plans uh, and they're not you know the entire story but i think uh, there's a quote i put in there from isaac asimov that literally said uh, the way we need to reduce population is by getting women to do interesting things because then they'll be distracted from having a family yeah i mean that's official government policy i mean if you look at the un population projections they have explicit negative coefficients related to uh, things like female uh, employment and education. It's like, oh, there's no African population bomb in some of these projections. The uh, shit, there was just a book that came out that was like, actually, they way underestimate the magnitude of that effect. um, And that uh, their claim was, which I don't actually believe because the impact of uh, the impact of education uh, and various white collar employments is kind of limited by the ability of your economy to support those things. And there's just not enough slack in some place like Chad for, uh, for that to have an effect. Like you can't have, you know, two thirds of your, your female population in school at any given time in Chad. Right. Um, they kind of would just starve to death, but their, their claim was that, ah, like, well, they're actually going to have shrinking populations by the end, end of the century because of exactly uh, that effect. Like that's not like some sort of right wing talking point or meme or something. That's the official recognized government diagnosis and solution. Well, it's going to be, I remember reading the, the, the articles about that book. Um, it's two guys. I think they're both Canadian. They work for the UN, and the, there was a Wired article about it. Yep, that's the one. And the, and the title of the Wired article was like, the world might actually run out of people. 
And I think it was this sudden realization um, that maybe the the demographic projections uh, don't make a lot of sense. Given some things that, I mean, you're saying it's not an all right talking point, but a lot of the topics that they end up citing are things that we've all been ostracized for bringing up. You know, education of women could very well lead to mass um, demographic decline, for example. Now, you're right that it's not going to be a reality in, in Chad or Pakistan. I wish it would be, um, but it won't be. It just won't be. For various reasons, that'll just not happen. What it will be reality in will be countries that we actually care about, including this one. Like Adam has a good point that Spandrel and several other guys, I think Spotted Toad and um, TCJFS have, have all brought this up, and, and it's Steve Saylor, um, that these big cities are IQ shredders. That a lot of the big metropolitan cities in, in, in America, North America and Europe, uh, East Asia, and Australia are, are IQ shredders. They've basically taken the smartest, um, fittest, best-looking people and ensure that the majority of them will never breed, will never have a kid. Um, and this has nothing to do with, I'm not even looking at this from a race standpoint. This is purely from you know, objective levels of beauty, fitness, and intelligence. Yeah, and, and it happens in, in East Asia just as much as in Western societies. I mean, Korea yes. has far below replacement level South Korea I should say has far below replacement levels Japan is notorious for this uh, China is actually uh, they've gotten rid of their one child policy because of this so well, it's and, and they're they're human is, civilization phenomenon just as much trouble as we are at this point I mean there, there's a huge number of men very smart men in China who basically have no chance of uh, maybe ever getting laid um, but Certainly One of the reasons have. they're colonizing Africa is to address that. They're trying to yeah. basically export their surplus population, just like the British used to do, yeah. uh, to the Americas. I mean, it's it's amazing how this this stuff you know repeats. And frontiers do tend to have much more positive, uh, much more positive eugenic effects, and also higher birth rates uh, when you're actually living on the frontier, especially your second generation when you actually have a, a balanced population uh, gender ratio. Like you you do have some people going back to the old country to, you know, get your, uh, go to med school or whatever. But if you're sort of settling a frontier and there's plenty of land and you're getting a good return on that, it's like, well, why would a guy go, go back? Uh, I want to find like, you know, find a nice uh, Chinese farmer who's been able to, uh, raise a bunch of uh, crops or whatever, or like like run a successful mine or whatever, and uh, you know you crank out a bunch of kids, and suddenly you've got nineteen uh, twenties know, USA demographics as a result of expansion into a frontier. Right. You know, one of the weird things that I've I noticed is reading the book is that a lot of these seem to be, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, maybe feel differently. A lot of this seems to be just the fact that the United States does not face existential threats on a repeated basis. There is no frontier anymore, and when the frontier, I think, was officially declared closed sometime in the 1910s, um, at the cusp of the Progressive Era, we talked about that in in our episode on the topic, but there's no existential threats anymore. So a lot of these problems start to arise because if there's no existential threats, you start losing your ability to determine what's 
necessarily worthwhile and what isn't. Yeah, I, I think Americans have become probably the poster child for caged animals. I mean, if you look at the... And they're gilded cages in, in, in many ways, and it's sort of counterintuitive if you look at it very naively. But just go to an American airport and compare it to a foreign airport, and you tell me if the society is healthy. Uh, you, you see this sort of coping uh, as the people are, are putting themselves through to deal with the problems, manifesting themselves with obesity and neck tattoos and just foul language and crude behavior. I mean, it's really a, it's a decline of the culture and the people and the sort of uh, impressiveness that used to exist. It wasn't that long ago where you'd see footage and, and hear people tell stories about people acting in more honorable ways and behaving in a way that was admirable. And I remember talking to people who were old enough to remember this, but the when Americans went over to places like Switzerland, which is today considered probably one of the most elite uh, only places on the world uh, in the world uh, after the second world war when american soldiers went there to spend their dollars i mean they were kings they were royalty and the american dollar was was such a uh, symbol of power and it also represented in physical terms the ability to buy american goods which are not available anywhere else at the price and the quality and the scale at which the american industrial system could produce and now that the financialization of the economy has taken hold, I mean, we get everything from China. And, and you tell me, you know, is that a, pro a progressive step for the greatest industrial uh, country in the world? I don't think so. I mean, it's basically given the power over to the elite who own the capital who, to put the factories in other countries who still remain, you know, in their asset column. But the people who are once well-behaved, respectable people, uh, have lost their jobs and basically are, are doing drugs, you know, and it's, it's destroyed the middle class. And it's, uh, it's, it, again, it's what, you know, America used to be famous for. It was the land of opportunity for the normal person. It wasn't for the, the elite or the connected, you know, the Jared Kushners and the Ivanka Trumps. No, it was for people who wanted to work hard and, and could get ahead without welfare, by the way. And, and this is another thing that's changed. Um, people who came here legally, um, probably most of our family uh, had some of this experience. They had to work their ass off to get ahead. And that created a culture that, in my opinion, created the, the bedrock of what built the wealth of this country. And it's continuing to operate on some of that philosophy by continuing to import immigrants uh, who are given a leg up from what they came from. Um, and it sort of castigates the people who were sort of raised here as being lazy for not wanting to work for less than their father got. Uh, but it's, um, it, it's sort of running on the fumes of H-1B visas and, and cheap migrant later from, from the South, uh, in particular for Mexico for construction and things like that. Uh, that leaves a lot of people without a job. And so they basically end up borrowing money on their credit card or refinancing their home uh, to basically try to live on the surface like they're doing well. But in effect, they're hollowing out the the balance sheet of the country and the bankers are doing fine because you know it's not their money anyway. They just print it at this point. I mean, our savings rates are below 0.01%. I mean, I, I literally got... I'm not going to say exactly, but I got less than 50 cents 
in my savings account last year, and I have a substantial amount uh, that would in the past given a decent return. And so what they do is they get the money from the Federal Reserve uh, and at, what, 2%, and then they lend it out at 5 I mean, th- th- there's, no, there's no skill involved in that. And then when they blow up their bank, they get bailed out. Uh, and so in the book, I talk about alternative economics. I, I talk about basically more localism. I talk about having protectionism that does not favor individual industries. I have to underline that because that creates corruption opportunities. But in effect, you're giving normal human beings uh, an opportunity to produce in a way that doesn't have to be in a hyper-capitalist hyper uh, system like today where everybody's competing against everybody on the, on the whole planet. You're, you're doing like what uh, the author uh, that I sort of based my pseudonym off of talked about, which is basically in Adam Smith's world, you had a baker down the street who was an honest character because he wanted to have a good reputation and you had a shoemaker and you had uh, somebody who was uh, good with horses and it was a real community that actually was something that a normal person could aspire to be a part of because it did not require 10 degrees and four trips abroad and seven different languages under their belts and the ability to code while they sleep. It was basically if you're a decent person and you don't you don't steal from people, you can get ahead. And that is based on the fact that there's really um, just less competition, but it still has incentives for people to behave. And so that's sort of my the thesis of the foundations of what I would believe to be a, a, a juster uh, economy and also one that makes people happier. It may not produce as much, and I think you know there's proof that it wouldn't. Uh, but you don't have to be communist. You don't have to be a, a Luddite either. You could still have manufacturing and, and complex technology, but you do need to have a balance, and we have no balance now. And I think that's the root of a lot of our problems is that we have a very corrupt elite who control the government and who have basically tried to take over the world, and it hasn't worked. And there's some fundamental flaws in our the way our empire works uh, as opposed to more coherent societies like China who actually can can run things um, for the benefit of most of their people. Uh, and it's, um, it's just not working out. And, and I compare it, I guess, to Rome, uh, where the system that fundamentally created the, the people that were strong enough to create that empire in the first place disappeared slowly but surely as they expanded their borders. Because as you start incorporating slaves and, and foreigners and barbarians into your society and giving them this, the same incentives like we're doing in the United States to fight for that country, they suddenly realize that they're not like the people that are in the middle of the, the capital. And then they start getting resentful. And just like happened in Teutoburg Forest when the, uh, the German soldier who was trained to be a Roman soldier, uh, his name was Arminius, uh, decided that he was going to take the skills that the empire had taught him to lead a revolt of the Germans, the German tribes, against the Roman legions, and he decimated them uh, and actually slowed uh, or arguably stopped the, the ultimate advance of the, the frontier of the, uh, the Roman Empire. I think we're seeing that today in America, where the system was built on sort of fundamental core character principles, uh, and because the people want to you know, have the same strength but without having to work for it because we have so much wealth now uh people are becoming weak and it's actually sowing the seeds of our our ultimate destruction you know i think some people might 
say that it's risky or, or I don't know, misplaced uh, to put stuff like this out here because you might further radicalize or radicalize guys that are, I guess, already, uh, I don't really like this term, but black build. Um, would you say that it's more, uh, uh, the book is more of a way of, of elucidating a lot of these certain truths to people rather than trying to indulge in, in more pessimism? Well, I, I don't particularly call for violence, um, but I do okay. talk about the importance to defend yourself and to remove yourself from a system that has enslaved you. Uh, because uh, I'm going to I'm going to give Nick a, a citation here. I remember him on one of the shows we did a long time ago. I, I it stuck with me, though. He said basically a slave is somebody who can't say no. And I thought that was a good way of putting it, because effectively, if you look at Americans live, I mean, they, they basically they're they're on a, a set track almost. Uh, this whole freedom stuff. I mean, well, you have to get a license to go fishing uh, and you have to do this uh, and that and you have to get this degree and you have to do this to impress the girl and it's and it's still not enough. And then you get uh, divorced and you lose custody rights of your kids. I mean, there is so little options today to just kind of go out, be an ordinary person that it really begs the question, why do you even bother? And that's not to say that you you should give up. Uh, it's never been my sort of point of view on anything. Uh, but it is a suggestion that if the game is rigged, don't play it. Find a different game, one that doesn't have a magnet under the table uh, that is screwing you up uh, or somebody with you know, a camera pointed at you like at the NSA who's basically spying on you 24-7 and figuring out what hand you're holding. That's not a, a not a fair system. Uh, so you should find people who agree with that notion and then work with them. And that's what we're doing on the show. I mean, effectively, uh, Jack Donovan said this, but it was basically uh, a gang of men is basically a group of men who are working together to help each other to defend against outside threats. And a lot of young men are feeling threatened. And so what I've what I would suggest to anybody who's feeling threatened is to find other people who agree with that and then work with them. Uh, it's suicide if you do, if you go up against this stuff alone because the system has a lot of power and it wants to keep it. And if you complain and you threaten it, it's going to crush you. And so you have to be really smart. And I think the first fundamental thing you need to do is you need to have the ability to be self-sufficient. Um, and it doesn't mean separating yourself completely, but it means if you are separated and if just like if you, I mean, for God's sakes, people are losing their bank accounts because they said something on Twitter. I mean, can you imagine, you know, uh, telling somebody 20 years ago that they would lose access to their, their bank if they said something that was wrong with you compare that to the Soviet union. I mean, this, this is, I mean, the, 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 that is, that is quite literally a, uh, a Bolshevik tactic, and that was, that was a Soviet tactic to deny basic financial services. Yeah, it was I mean, some, like it, it worked almost identically. I mean, yeah. after uh, after Stalin was dead, like they didn't bother to just execute you. It's just well, whatever job you had is no longer available, and it's illegal to be unemployed. So you know, you work down at the mill, maybe that'll tucker you out and you won't have enough uh, energy for this activism. And every so often we're going to toss over your, uh, your apartment uh, over some bullshit. Uh, we're going to make sure that uh, no decent woman wants to be associated with you because it's just too much of a hassle and just sort of uh, grind down until you see the uh, error of your ways. Yeah. 
mean, one of the one of the points you make in sort of the the exit, I guess, more exit strategy focused part, where you're talking about you know, building out, you actually make a good point about just relationships, like friendships and and family. Um, and one of the only reasons why a lot of those, especially late stage Soviet dissidents, survived. Uh, so I'm thinking mainly in the Baltic states, is that they had family networks, they had friends. They had friends who, who felt like them, and they could get along with them and, and talk to them. And within a few years, you know, you had a whole network of family, friend networks that eventually made up huge swaths of the population in those SSRs, and they were able to um, separate themselves very effectively. Because it became, that- became way too apparent to the Soviets that, you know, we're not, like, looking at a resistance group here. We're looking at people's familial connections like people are, are about to lay down their lives for their family and you know this is either the this is the hungarian uprising all over again for us or, or we just let them go and i think that's a really important pattern because i mean if i was going to give a single diagnosis for what's going on with kind of macro level u.s society it's that the elites transitioned from a productive mode to a extractive mode where everybody is pretty clear that there's a limited slice of the pie and everybody's goal is to grab as much of it as possible. So they form these little cabals and they carve out these little areas where they can do things like have monopolies on uh, essential technology infrastructure or where they can freeze out political opponents so that if somebody does get elected who doesn't know how to tow the party line, it's very easy to isolate them until they get with the program. And a side effect of atomization, which is something that you you bring up all over the place in this book, I think it's really great, uh, is that you're isolated from people that can help you and you're only option as far as a lot of people see it is to work inside the system for the system's benefit in a productive mode where most of the fruits of your labor are effectively being stolen from you and you're just hoping for a kickback at some point that usually never comes and i think if most people just have the uh have the kind of uh, the precept that this is what what's in it for me like how can i how can i have friends who are able to do me a favor at the expense of this system and vice versa and once you start seeing things in that way I mean, think like that tends to engender a societal collapse pretty quickly because everybody starts acting like gypsies. Uh, but, you know, kind of given the trajectory that uh, we're headed down, I think mm-hmm. that that's the only sane way to operate as yeah. our elite has been for the last 40 years at least. Yeah, there's two things. Um, re- real quick, Hans. Uh, thank, thank you, Hank. That, I think that was well said. Um, but two things I'm... I'm thinking of when you say those things is right now you are not benefiting uh, as Hank said you're, you're losing a lot of the fruits of your labor uh, so there are benefits to looking for alternative approaches to 
earning a living, raising a family. Uh, but, and this is, this is more speculative and this is more difficult to predict, obviously, but what happened in the Soviet Union, as Hank was, was saying, with you know, turning into gypsies after the collapse happened, all of those factories were looted. People were desperate. People took what they can get because the system was no longer giving them anything anymore, let alone something like now, like today, but not a very fair amount. And if you were not able to do that or were not prepared for it, you were really screwed. Uh, the, the life expectancy of Russia dropped, and it currently is still uh, somewhere like in 156th place. I mean, it, it is abysmal. I'll put a link to this guy's. Uh, one of the listeners to the show sent me a suggestion for a channel, uh, and he's a guy from Romania. I forget his name, but he's, uh, he's a really smart guy, and he's, uh, he's talking about why Russia is actually not great, uh, and it, it's still suffering. I mean, that, that's my point. It's basically if you go through an empire collapse, the institutions that you in the past were able to rely upon for something are no longer there. And if you do not have something to support yourself when that happens, you are going to suffer. And a lot of people flood the country. A lot of people fell into alcoholism. And I look around and I look at Americans and I, I see a people that are not rugged individualists like the sort of famous notion of what an American was uh, once upon a time. Uh, and that's partly because the frontier doesn't exist and we don't have to be. But most Americans seem to live in these uh, these artificial shoebox houses that are built en masse by toll brothers or whoever some big company they didn't build it themselves they actually don't understand how to frame the, the building they don't understand how to wire it they don't understand how to get irrigation to it and sewage taken out and we are so dependent on the system and you have to have the highway to get to the job you have to have the cell phone to get the notification you have to have the internet access i mean any one of these things that if they were taken out people would be crippled and so by getting out and being in a rural area, by being able to, I mean, a lot of people don't, don't want to do this, but it is very fulfilling in many ways. If you grow your own food, if you have the ability to earn a living that doesn't require the internet or something that's complicated that you can fix yourself, you're going to be much better off, in my opinion, not only today, but especially if something happens. And I, I would say that is... Um, probably the biggest reason why you would want to get started. And it doesn't have to be all of a sudden, you know, without any sort of planning or forethought, because we have the luxury of time at this point to, to do the proper planning and coordination with others. And if you can do that, you're going to be in a great position. And this, to, this is something uh, Nick has brought up in the past as well, is that if you do that, you're going to be in a good position to actually um, have a legitimate case for power uh, if the system is under stress, because you actually are, in a stronger position, relatively speaking, and you are a credible uh, source of leadership because you can offer people something that is a benefit and improvement over what they're experiencing from a collapsed system. And so that gives you political uh, power. And if you are able to leverage that properly, you are building the foundation for the next society. So, so Hans, please continue. Well, I, you know, I was going to say that um, just the aspiration for friendship and for building a family, those two essential building blocks. Just the aspiration for that is not something that the you know our current elites really want. They don't want you to have real friends. They don't want you to want a family. They don't want you to aspire to any of that. They want you lonely. They want you isolated. They want you alienated. They want you afraid of your own shadow 
Um, and they certainly don't want you having a family and caring about something and you know, be willing to lay down your life for something. That's just not in their agenda. So I just think that the aspiration for normalcy is incredibly powerful. And that's a huge part of like just building out a, f- a future society. Like be normal, do normal things, have normal priorities. Have normal priorities of I want friends, I want kids, I want a nice wife, I want to be able to provide for my kids, I want to do things that make me happy. Keep those as your sort of arc goals, your arch priorities. And uh, watch, watch it how your life improves. Your life, you mean, even though how, even though things are bad now, I know, I know things are bad now. But even if you just keep that mindset, your life will improve. You will get those things, trust me. It'll happen. As long as you actually aspire towards them and you do something constructive, you will have those things in your life. It's not unattainable. Yeah, I I would, of course, agree, but I also would not call it normalcy. I would call it life. I would call it the will to life, which... right. The will uh, to normalcy, because the system represents death. The system represents yours, mine, our families, everything that we care about, our ancestors, death, collective death, the vanishing and the great dustbin of history. And the reason that we, we may be accused of erring on the side of pessimism is not because we have a, a death outlook, but because we have a life outlook and we want to address the problems that are preventing the growth and expansion of the life of our people and our ways. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you, I mean, it's, we're just very sensitive it. to what we believe is is clearly a better alternative. And a lot of people, I think it's frustrating to me, and I know other people on this call as well, that other people don't see it. And we all know why. I mean, we're propagandized you know, from cradle to grave at this point. The social security system is going to be there to save you. Don't worry. Well, you know, take a look at the, the balance sheet of the United States government for, for one quick uh, reality check on that. And it's just frustrating to anybody who has a brain who thinks this through. And a lot of people don't want to think. Maybe they have a brain, but they don't want to do it because they enjoy watching television more. But for whatever reason, we're the types of people that that find, you know, that little sort of uh, piece of sand in our shoe that bothers us. And we want to know why why it's there and who put it there. Um, and so for nothing else, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out a way to get that, that little grain of sand. It was the Jews, Adam, the Jews put that sand in my shoe. Well, I think they helped if nothing else. You have a good part here too, about, you know, minimizing stress. How many, uh, let's just, let's just take a poll and all three of you answer me. How many problems or how, how much uh, on a scale of one to 10? Do you think our current problems are caused by just too much stress? Too much stress in everyday life? A lot for me, just because I, I have a tendency to overthink things. And so getting to sleep at times is difficult. Uh, and so some of the things I talk about are basically putting things in perspective. It's like, you know, you're not going to solve the universe's problems and realize you're one of, of trillions of, of other components to it, if not. Uh, I, I can't think of the term for higher numbers, but obviously it's greater than that. And so put things in perspective, realize that priorities and things, you know, are, are ways of dealing with this and there's always going to be another day, you know, so that's how I cope with it. But yeah, no, it, it's, it's a crippling thing. If, if you let the black pill consume you, I mean, be aware of it, but 
it can destroy you. So that that's well, there's uh, a lot, but there's two kinds of stress. You have the a healthy stress that is just you have responsibilities and uh, you have the crunch and they need to be taken care of. And now that they're taken care of, then you can you know enjoy your whiskey and relax. It's fine. You've you've done your duty. Then there's the unhealthy stress of coping with an absolutely inhuman and unnatural system that's trying to kill us all. Uh, so <laughs> the, the latter is responsible for much of our, our issues, yes. Thank. Yeah, when you talk about stress, I mean, I think it's important to realize that there's a lot of, you know, as we sort of enter, uh, enter this... Uh, I don't necessarily want to say death spiral because that implies a, a sort of cataclysm. But as uh, as things become worse, I guess you'd say, the parts of the system that are actually productive are worked down to the bone. Like you, you see this in a, in the medical context, where if you have you know, two thirds of your patients aren't paying a dime. So the remainder has this horrible insurance racket where, well, we send you a bill for a million dollars. And if you have insurance, then we knock it down to to 40, but then we realize we screwed it up and we bill you for it. And nobody really knows who's paying whom, how much or how much they're going to be claiming to Oh, in the future. And it's exactly the sort of situation where, you know, if you've hypothetically had a kid or you've had a loved one that's had a major surgery, there's just this, this blizzard of bullshit that happens where it would be so easy. Like, it's not like nobody's ever had a child at this hospital before, like to have a, this is what it is going to cost, like plus or minus if there's complications, and there's all sorts of systems that are set up this way intentionally as ways to get the last erg of energy out of somebody who has it to spare to a system that they're forced to participate in. So I think this is the genesis of a lot of this feeling. I mean, it's also just kind of the uncertainty. Like you can be in a situation where, okay, I know this is going to suck. I know how much it is going to suck. And I know that like the situation will be done at the end of it. And that's a lot less stressful than not knowing when the next electric jolt is going to happen. Like I swear, like every four years now, people are just going to have PTSD one way or another on election night for as long as we still keep having elections. I mean, did you guys know that there is now officially or according to the American uh, Society of Pediatric Society and the CDC, a sleep deprivation crisis in America. That it's now, according to these bodies and others, a a public health crisis. Everything is a public health crisis. Like this bugs me so much. Like doctors are one of the remaining groups that has some amount of social pull. As far as like, if you say. Oh, the American, what is it? The American Medical Association well, says the AMA like people is a public health crisis. Yeah, <laughs> like people nod soberly and it's like, oh, that's a, that's a thing. But it's like, okay, you, you took over the institution, you gutted it, you're wearing it as a skin suit, and you're using it to push whatever bullshit you want under the guise of something that really the only application is once you've got sewage 
and clean drinking water, your public health job is basically done. Like there's like there was a great graph um, that I saw today. It's been floating around for a while that if you take out um, deaths from the top eight uh, infectious diseases, death rates in the U.S. have been uh, have been constant since like 1900 or so. Like that is the sole contribution of medicine to aggregate life expectancy has been infectious diseases. And most of that wasn't even doctors. Most of that was a dude like literally plotting. Wow. It seems like everybody who drinks from this well gets cholera. Maybe we could shut that down. And a whole bunch of doctors saying, yeah, you know, that really doesn't comport with our theory of miasma. So, uh, you know, probably, uh, doesn't get the AMA seal of approval. Like, EMJ went to uh, Africa recently. I think it was uh, East Africa. And he said uh, AIDS doesn't exist. It's basically an amalgamation of various diseases that are caused that basically doctors can't really point to exactly. And that's what kills people when they have HIV. Right. It's a syndrome. Yes. Like syndrome means we need a medical billing code for this. <laughs> Like it's like a, a syndrome so is not right. a disease. Yeah, no a syndrome is definitionally I have like this collection of symptoms, maybe even this collection of syndromes spread out over an entire population where no two people have the set, same set of syndromes. Yeah, and they seem to be concentrated in people with incredibly poor sanitation, like in Africa and also in homosexual bathhouses where they're sharing uh, the same orifices. Uh, in a, in a network graph that would rival Facebook. So it's um, so sanitation. It, You're right. Yeah. Hank, I was being so, somewhat genuine with the sleep deprivation thing. Like, I, I was speak, talking about that. Oh, I, I agree. The, it's a problem. To the, to the stress issue. And my worry is that um, it's a sign of two things. It's a sign of people just like what Nick was saying, totally unable to cope with everyday life at this point, which would explain the opioid usage in huge swaths of the country. Um, but I would also say that a greater and greater extent of it is people are working too many jobs. Like, I'll be honest with you. I, uh, I took an Uber to the airport at like four in the morning not too long ago. And I was chatting with my Uber driver, and it was like a um, 30-something-year-old woman. And she said, uh, I do this at night from 8 p.m. till about 7 a.m. I was like, wait, what? She's like, yeah, so that you know, um, my kids are asleep, and uh, my oldest is, is able to kind of watch them at night. And, you know, So I do it so I don't miss any time with them, and, and yada, yada, yada. Then she said she also has a part-time job three days a week at a local bar. So this woman is probably working, I would say, um, I don't know, at least 60 hours a week from what I could tell. Mm -hmm. And uh, is also a mother to three. A mom to three. And I was just thinking, so by the time you're 50, if you keep this up, your heart is going to literally explode. Unless you have the best diet I've ever thought of on the planet, oh, you I, are going to have you you are going yeah, to have a heart attack. People drive for a living never have good diets. I, I dated a yeah, girl right. once, and her so, mother was a, a bus driver, and she said she'd come home and she'd be working in the backyard because she was a single mom, and she'd be 
pulling weeds out of the yard and my girlfriend at the time described her as a ball of stress growing up. Well, I mean, this, part this of it too is of... that, you know, people have electronics now. There's demonstrable effects from the blue light. Like, if you haven't done it right now, like, do it right now. Like, t- figure out how to turn on night mode on all your electronics. It's It definitely makes a difference. Ideally, yes. you know, like, before you go to bed, instead of, uh, you know, checking your tweets or whatever, like, read a book. Like, just schedule schedule your life to avoid electronics before bed. And that's, like, a concrete thing that you can do to improve your life. I mean, part of the sleep deprivation, too, like, I like melatonin is huge. I, I use that stuff. It's great. But it's probably not long-term healthy for a good portion of your population to be alternately doing the uh you know the the go pills and the stop pills with uh, caffeine in the morning melatonin or your sedative of choice at night well this this talk reminds me of the opening of tropic of cancer which i can't help but read now which is the weather will continue bad he says there will be more calamities more death more despair not the slightest indication of change anywhere the cancer of time is eating us away. Our heroes have killed themselves or are killing themselves. The hero then is not time, but timelessness. We must get in step, a lockstep towards the prison of death. There is no escape. The weather will not change. Yeah, I mean, I think that the CDC, Tucker's been harping on about this a lot, and yet for like the past three years now, has noted noted a uh, continuous decline in the standard of living in you know for um, American males basically, the American men um, on every factor, every kind of sta- every quality of life factor, sleep deprivation, drug usage, alcohol usage, um, weight problems, thyroid problems. I mean everything you can imagine is just bad. Everything's bad. Yeah, and since the seventies, the average the wages American, or the, the median, I should say, the meet not the average because the average includes the billionaires. So forget them for a second, because well, I'm not a billionaire. I don't think anybody in this call is. Uh, but the median uh, income of the American has not improved since 1972, thereabouts. And if you look at the charts of when we were engaged in you know the Vietnam War, and then that was sort of tailing off, and there wasn't that sort of government spending anymore, and we're moving the factories offshore, we're increasing our, our imports of foreign uh, goods that used to be made in the United States, those jobs are going away, and basically the, the pressure that businesses felt to raise wages for workers is no longer felt when they can obtain that work overseas. Uh, or through automation. And so that, in my opinion, has explained much of the decline in the average male worker in particular who used to do the the physical work. In addition to that, women enter the workforce, adding even more downward pressure on wages. And finally, it's, it's it's the immigration as well. Well, I mean, it's not... Adam does a great job of explaining in detail the various components of this. But if you look around, if you look at this, you see the organic decay... The explanation is uh, pretty simple. It's what you're looking at is the byproduct of parasitism. This is our enemies are perfectly fine. I mean, some of the you know their lower 
henchmen are are sipping the poison themselves, but our real enemies, they're, they're doing quite well. They're living off of uh, the blood. And the solution is very simple. You kill the parasite. Yeah, this is something that Kevin Michael Grace used to talk about. <laughs> like, have any of these people ever actually experienced anything bad in their lives? Or experienced anything bad in the last 10 years? Yeah, they ever you really, you off. really have ever gone through really have to wonder. Yeah. Have, has anything, you know, the, there, there's this old adage that, or this old idea that sometimes things go wrong for rich people. Like one of the things that Alex used to talk about was that a lot of the semi kind of wealthy industrialists um, basically lost their shirts and were totally wiped out. Some families were totally just destitute permanently in the Great Depression because a lot of them were long. They were all long for the most part on the U.S. market. And a lot of them just got totally just destroyed and never made a comeback. And it's very possible. That used to be possible. That used to be a thing that would happen. You used to see rich families get completely destroyed in land speculation deals, never to be seen again, lost to the dustbin of history. It used to be a real risk to being rich and powerful. Medieval kings in Europe had one of the highest death rates of any, prof- I don't know, profession or title. It was very common for a medieval king or a medieval noble, regardless well, of country, to die. It, it's gone out of fashion ever since uh, our previous. He would have been our man in the past, but uh, he's really uh, he's not had a good year, which would be uh, Taleb. And but it is a case of skin in the game, right? And and yeah. part of the reason they're willing to to lead at the front as opposed to lead from the rear, like our neocons uh, seem to be wont to do. Uh, was because they had large families and they knew that their sons and daughters would carry on their legacy and they would inherit the lands and they had a reason to fight to protect them. You know, today, if you look at uh, places like Silicon Valley, I mean, there was a uh, an image of Sam Altman uh, getting out of like an Uber uh, to go to Davos, I think it was. And, uh, the caption wow. of it was, uh, Sam Altman pays $50,000 to have himself killed and uploaded to the internet or something ridiculous. I mean, he's a homosexual. He's a billionaire at this point. And so he, his life is basically trying to, to figure out how, what pleasure hole can I satisfy uh, next. But he really doesn't care about how society turns out because he has no children. He has no stake in society. He has no skin in the game. I mean, it, it's, it's unbelievable how sort of anti-human our society has become. Again, parasitism. They get the upside and they don't share in any of the downside. Like as much as I, you know, think he's an interesting guy, Peter Thiel, is that guy going to leave on a legacy? Is there going to be is there going to well, be someone to carry on the Thiel dynasty? PayPal just, uh, I think, booted Owen Benjamin, so I guess that's his <laughs> legacy. I mean, Zuckerberg is one kid, one kid. That guy could afford to have twenty kids. He's had one child. He's got Jarvis. Yeah. And, and I think it's almost, the he almost talking, did it. I'm not even convinced that's his kid. It doesn't look anything like him. Well, that'll happen when you marry the uh, the Chinese grad student <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, the kid's like 100% Chinese. <laughs> like, the father it's is like, is a, this is, is going to be the most well-financed the school shooting in human history. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> the high score is locked down. He's already he's already posting on the Reddit app forum. Oh my God, man! 
Speaking of Davos, uh, for the dissident writers that we saw who made a surprise visit to Davos, uh, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Don't think we didn't see you, by the way. We know who you are. Not, we weren't very big fans of that. We got a good laugh out of it, though. Whatever you were doing there, fucking parking cars or whatever. Oh, taking selfies. I hope they had good cocaine. Yeah, I hope you really enjoyed it there. But uh, anyways... Um, one of the things that Adam does really well too, for those still listening, the uh, this entire section at the end, basically on every little survival topic you could think of, everything oh. from agriculture to me- what what a megawatt is, to how to generate energy, to how to work with HVAC, to you know basic construction, what to have in your bug out bag. Right. These are all like really basic things, guys. And you should you shouldn't just read this and then think I'm going to go out in the woods. You know, think that you're pine tree Twitter after reading the the last section of this book. Yeah, spend some time reading up and practicing on some of these things. Not everything. Get good at some of them, and then make friends who are good at other things. It's to you make you a better man, and, and it's, right. to, it's to make right. you a better part of a team. And right. one of the best things about being part of a team is that you're respected. And if you're not respected in the team, you're not going to be in that team for very long if it's a decent team. And, you know, I forget who it was. It was a comedian who said it, but it was basically, I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would have me. And it's like that basically implies that he needs to be shooting higher if he's not in a group that, you know, would would sort of challenge him. I mean, you got to be good. And so this is about, you know, personal development, obviously. But what I'm trying to get at is that our society is really not really worth salvaging at this point. And so we have to start with ourselves and then work out from there. And then you work with people who get it, who are capable, who respect you and you respect them. And again, you'll, you'll develop a following just by virtue of the fact that you're just better than everybody else. If you can do that and you're going to get the power that we don't have that we want. You'd be surprised how many guys, I've met that don't know how to use a screwdriver. I actually would be surprised. I mean, is that I've never (laughs) seen that before. They don't, um, they don't know the basics of electricity. Now I'm guessing they never took basic physics in in high school or they just didn't pay attention. I'll I'll admit, and I've taken courses in this stuff. uh, Electricity is still a little bit magical to me. (laughs) Okay. uh, But there's, there's very basic things. There's very basic units of measurement. There's very basic ways of calculating electrical flow, working with wires, Sure. Simple things that even my grandfather, a bar owner, knew how to do. Knew how well, to repair. There's the fork, and then there's where you should not put the fork. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, here's a quick tip for anybody who doesn't know what uh, side of the, the outlet not to put your finger in. Uh, the reason the, the side, you know where you look at an outlet and it kind of looks funny? Like there's there's somebody, like one of, it looks like a face. Then there's two eyes at the top, and one of them looks like it was like punched or something because it's big. That's the safe hole. The reason it's bigger is because you can put your finger in that one. That's the neutral line. Do not put your finger or any fork or metal object into the small hole because it's small for a reason. <laughs> Our show could so save your life. This is, this is now a hardware home construction <laughs> uh, podcast. So if I'm going to recommend um, all work, guys, I guess we're going to transition to home ec hours here but um if i had to recommend anything for cookware i would really cast recommend iron cast iron you guys gotta get cast iron and anything that's um basic stoneware from like uh, le creuset does i mean it's expensive very fancy it, it's expensive but it'll last you 10 years 
it's amazing. if you don't if you don't have a cast iron pan uh oh, yes you yeah. might want to get tested for uh <laughs> grids so there's two there's there's a couple of different kinds of cast iron there's a couple of american brands um but first of all you can go to most antique stores old hardware shops garage sales find a cast iron pan typically because most people don't know what to do with them anymore well one thing i will say about cast iron pan is you should treat it yes some people want to use vegetable oil i would say you you could use good use good real quality olive oil and what you do is you coat both sides of the pan and you heat it uh probably i think like 350 for about two hours and you just let it coat onto the pan the, so, the oil there's a couple other ways of doing this. Um, but first of all, you can find them in a lot of places. People don't know how to use them anymore. Um, you're going to want to basically um, give them a vinegar bath. Vinegar will strip out everything but the metal. And then you're going to want to throw it in the oven with nothing on it at like 500 degrees. You really want to yeah, super... That's right. You want to do that first. But then you want to superheat the metal as much as you can and fry off any impurities. Bear, you know, Basically bake it back down to just a piece of iron. After that, you can do olive oil uh, if you really want to. Another way to go is something like flaxseed oil or grapeseed yeah, oil. Yeah, that's, that's popular, but... I don't know. The best thing for kind of later seasoning to really add a lot of additional grease constantly to your pan and to season it, um, uh, bacon fat is what I use. Oh, yeah. And uh, duck fat is another one a lot of people use. I, I guess you can't you can't go wrong with cast iron. There's a lot of enameled cast iron. Again, like Crusade, a lot of Ameri older American brands still make them. We can find them places, clean them up. Enameled is when they have sort of a colored surface on them. Enameled cast iron, you do not have to season or coat the enameled side. There's a lot of enameled skillets. Where the actual interior of the skillet is raw cast iron. You're going to want to season that and coat that. The rest of it, you don't have to care about. Um, but I would recommend you guys just transition all of your cookware to that. Get away from plastic. Use wood or metal as much as you can and everything. Um, There's metal, another great advantage of cast iron. I mean, you can use stainless steel on it. You can correct. use your fork. Your you can, and wood, wood, as long as it's not too hot. You yeah, can use right. wood to do whatever you need to do inside your cast iron pan. Um, metal ladles, metal tongs, wooden spoons, wooden spatulas. The guys can't go wrong with that. Uh, it's I also a good neg when you go over to a woman's house. You just right. like start rifling through cabinets. Be like, "Hey, where's your where's your pan? Where's your cast iron?" <laughs> yep. Step one: she, everyone she you, you one. get a cast iron she pan. Doesn't. Step two: global race war. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple other things you guys should know how to do. You should know how to use a barbecue. I've met countless guys in college who didn't know how to use a fucking barbecue, and it was. Just sad in all kinds of ways. Um, can't use charcoal. Can't use gas. I mean, gas should have been the most, the easiest thing in the world. You literally hook up the giant fucking hose to the gas, and then you turn the gas on, and then the you light the your propane. Fire. Yeah, but yeah. Think it's, it's elementary. Right I mean, see, but just like every fun. one of you should know how to tie a simple noose. I mean, these are <laughs> these are household <laughs> things that all of us need to be familiar with for the future to come. Right, I mean, we can't let the news time go to Nigerian immigrants in Chicago. Exactly. <laughs> uh, if I can make an attempt at tying some of the the ideas that we've just discussed. Yeah, you tie uh, those ideas, Adam. You I tie would... them nice and fucking tight. Well, I would I would recommend um, 
learning how to do a, a, a bowlin or a square knot uh, or a clove yeah. hitch. There's uh, or a taut line. Actually, those are probably the four that I use the most. But what I was going to say was, um, you know, you mentioned charcoal, you mentioned ducks, you mentioned uh, a lot of things. Um, nope. You mentioned iron, uh, cast iron. Yeah. So if you if you look at how um, medieval man, or not even medieval, but just like for most of history, frankly. Uh, it was a very before petroleum. Basically, it was a a wood fired, wood centric, plant forest centric world. And if you can work with wood and know what wood can do, it's a wonderful material and resource. And uh, you mentioned charcoal, for example. Uh, a lot of people probably don't know where charcoal comes from. I didn't understand how it was made. I knew it was made of wood, but I didn't know how. If you can actually, uh, there's there's a great channel on YouTube, uh, Primitive Technology, I believe it's called. Um, this kid is amazing, uh, and I'm not going to describe myself as being capable as him, but I actually have tried some of this stuff, and and it's it's doable. So watch that while the internet still works. Basically, is what I'm saying, and do some of it. More importantly, uh, but you can make charcoal by basically uh, burying um, just logs under a pile of earth and then you have to insert a, a source of, of combustion into that so maybe an existing you know log that's already been burning it's very hot and it will smolder and what you create in the process once it's all done and sort of smoked out and then you basically uncover the uh, the pile is you have this very high energy density material that can produce a heat that ordinary wood fire cannot. And that allows you to not only store the energy in a more efficient way that's not going to rot, but also it lets you do metalworking. It lets you actually right. melt metal. Uh, and that's the fundamental of one of the big fundamentals of our modern society is actually understanding how metal works. I've actually melted aluminum, uh, which is much easier than, than iron because it has a lower melting point. Um, but, but making things and being close to things like this actually gives you some ability to, uh, to survive. And I'll give you the final example of why I like charcoal is actually an amazing material. Uh, in the book, I talk about, you know, very briefly, but I give you links to sort of see, you know, more schematics and diagrams and, and more details and instructions. But you can actually build uh, and a, a generator using not uh, nothing but charcoal. So if you have access to wood, which is not that hard, um, you can make charcoal and then take that charcoal and put it in what's called a wood gasifier. And that wood gasifier will take the emissions of the burning charcoal, which I believe is carbon monoxide, which I you know, used to think was sort of a, you know, a useless gas that is emitted by, you know, automobiles. But it turns out that you can actually reroute this through a pipe and you have to actually filter out some of the, the emissions of, of the resi residue in the charcoal from trees. But once you do that, you run it through a regular gasoline power generator and it's all gas. It's actually not the liquid, which is sort of a misnomer, but when we say gas, it's referring to gasoline, not the gas element form or, or phase state, I should say. But basically you run the emissions of the charcoal through a gasoline generator and it'll actually work. It'll generate electricity from that. So you could power your modern devices if you have access to a forest without any petroleum, any electrical grid. All you have to do is take the time to put this thing together. And all you need is like a 55-gallon drum, a generator, and some pipes and access to charcoal or the ability to make it. And so if you want to live rurally, if you want to go off-grid, 
uh, and you, you have a mechanical inclination. Um, and again, if you want to stand out from other people, I told this to a couple of neighbors of mine and, and they, they've heard of this, but they've never seen it. And so it just, it captivates people's attention. If you can build that, you're the guy now in that community. You're the guy who knows how to work with, uh, with wood and, and metal and, and energy. And suddenly you're valuable and suddenly you're important and suddenly you have power which is, again, what we need if we're going to take command of our society again. Yeah, if I, if I could summarize, basically we have, you know, turn off your electronics when, you know, as much as you can. Don't, don't spend too much time on the computer. Uh, cook with cast iron. Cultivate primitive skills. Uh, shoot as much as you can afford to. Stock up on a lot of rope and uh, read Adam's book. Well, thank you. And, and with that, if I can read uh, the conclusion, which I just added. So uh, I, I released uh, an announcement on Friday that a few people were, were kind enough to show some interest in. I sent them a book already. But if you want the last two pages of it, which has the conclusion, which I'm going to put in the show notes anyway for this show, um, I will send you an updated version of the book if you'd like. But it's basically just what I'm about to read. Uh, so without further ado, let me read the conclusion to Exit Strategy, Navigating the Decline of the American Empire. One cannot expect others to do for you what you wish to have done. When a society views you as irrelevant, or even worse, expendable, you owe it no loyalty. Entertainment is supposed to be more surreal than reality. Yet when looking at society today, one gets the sense that we are living in a version more extreme than that portrayed by Blade Runner. Think of AI, megacorporations, and a wealthy elite. Invasion of the body snatchers, NPCs and pod people, and World War Z, refugees? To escape, we look not to movies, but to a real-world exit strategy. Yet doing so only minimizes the problem. To build anew, we must reform into smaller, adaptive units, united by a common cause and propelled forward by the clarity of their vision. Jack Donovan says that gangs are groups of men that band together to defend against outsiders. Similarly, towns, communities, and small societies form from working together at shared goals, accomplishing some, failing at others, but all the while earning respect from each other. Great civilizations form from the bottom up. G.K. Chesterton noted, men did not love Rome because she was great. Rome was great because they had loved her. Things that form organically, out of the hearts of people and their passions, dedication, and will, form the building blocks of civilizations that go on to last for centuries. Very few societies, let alone civilizations, are able to accomplish such greatness by meticulous planning alone. Action in the real world requires experimentation, failure, adaptation, and evolution. Nothing can be thought out completely, perfectly beforehand. Therefore, civilizations must be flexible, must be composed of individuals willing to work together towards clear, concrete goals that improve the lives of the participants as well as the greater good. Greek and Roman monuments exist to this day and inspire people the world over. The descendants of these titans can be proud of their achievements while learning from their mistakes. What will be said in future gener generations of Homo capitalists, modern architecture 
of cold glass, steel, and concrete derived from an obsession with quarterly earnings reports and spreadsheet economics? Will it be one of affection or one of derision and shame like that for Homo Sovieticus's brutalist style that haunts the cities of the former Eastern Bloc? Your ancestors thought in terms of hundreds of years, and their buildings have lasted for thousands. If no one is coming, you must be strong, not only physically, but mentally and spiritually as well. In order to endure the challenge of building and commanding one's own space, everyone dies. What matters in the end is what you leave behind. By living your philosophy now, you create foundations for others to build upon. The most successful among us will withstand the coming fires of civilizational collapse, and our legacies will be poised to inspire the next generation of civilization builders. Your legacy, our legacy, is a matter of will. What are you waiting for? Stop.